When we say that a theatre performance brought the house down, we usually don't mean that literally. But in the case of Shakespeare's play Henry VIII, or as it's sometimes known, all is true, the phrase really does apply. In a performance in 1613, a stray spark from a cannon ignited a fire that burned the Globe Theatre to the ground. In fact, throughout its chequered history of performance, this play has suffered or enjoyed a variety of different climaxes, all of which makes Laura Jane Wright of the University of Oxford wonder just what is the real ending of a work of drama. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2018. I was trying to think of a funny way to start a talk about endings, and I thought of Frank Sinatra. So I'm, I'm not going to sing, you'll be pleased to hear. But I was thinking of, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. And it would have been well suited to almost any discussion about theatre, but not to this one. <laughs> because early modern playhouses didn't have a final curtain. They often had uh, cloth draped at the back of the stage, so uh, black cloth to set the mood for a tragedy, but they didn't have a curtain to be lowered. Early modern plays ended in a different way. In the 1570s and 80s, when the first permanent playhouses were established in London, plays often ended uh, with a jig. So uh, this is a short comic scene of song and dance performed once the play was done. So it was fun, it was energetic, and it often got audiences clapping along. There was a dance at the end of the play when Thomas Platter, a Swedish tourist, saw Julius Caesar at the Globe in 1599. And we know this because, helpfully, he wrote it down in his diary. He said, uh, when the play is over, they danced very marvellously and gracefully together, as is their wont, two dressed as men and two as women. So by the turn of the 17th century, the jig had largely fallen out of fashion. As I'll be talking about today, however, there's more than one way to end a play. So plays might end with a final rhyming couplet, that's drawing the action to a close. They might end with an epilogue, uh, a final speech given at the end of a play, and often addressed to the audience, asking for applause. And applause itself was also a sign that the play was done, and hopefully that it would be put on again. So today, although Henry VIII was written by both John Fletcher and William Shakespeare, I'll be considering its ending in the light of Shakespeare's endings. So Shakespeare's epilogues work to break the spell that his plays have cast, bringing us back to the real world. In the final lines of A Midsummer Night's Dream, the fairy Puck takes pains to point out that the theatre disappears as soon as the play ends, fading away like a shadow or a dream. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. Gentles do not reprehend, if you pardon, we will mend. So, good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. So the play is something fragile, something that exists only once in the moment of performance. But even this farewell, as the play melts away and those on stage disappear, raises the question of where the play really ends. Is it at the end of the play proper, which is finished with the marriage of two sets of lovers? Or is it here in this epilogue, the additional final speech? 
Or is it with a final sound as the audiences give Puck the applause he's been looking for? Give me your hands. Is the ending of a play something like a transaction signed and sealed by the audience's approval? Does it end when the theatre's empty? Or when the play has its final performance? When people stop writing about it? Stop thinking about it? So, to answer that question, it's important first to ask, what do we expect of a concluding scene? When we describe Shakespeare's plays, we often do so in terms of their endings. So, Romeo and Juliet, the one where they both die. Othello, the one where he kills his wife. Hamlet, the one where everyone dies. When we split them up into genres, uh, we do so according to how they end. So the poet Byron, writing a couple of hundred years later, put it very memorably in his own work, Don Juan. He said, all tragedies are finished by a death. All comedies are ended by a marriage. Great, but endings are not quite so straightforward. At the end of Act 5, Shakespeare's plays leave at least one hint of future happenings. In fact, the more I've been thinking about endings this summer, the more difficult I've found it to pin down a Shakespearean ending that does not look ahead. There always has to be someone left standing, even at the end of a tragedy. Even if quite who that person should be, it's hard to pin down. At the end of King Lear, for instance, the king and his three heirs are dead. The final line itself may look forward to the possibility of a future, but it cannot help but remind us of the horrors that have passed. The oldeth hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. Exeunt, they exit with a dead march, finis. So, in what appears to be an act of revision, both quarto editions of King Lear give this line and presumably, therefore, the inheritance of the land to Albany. Uh, the folio gives the last speech to Edgar. Um, I'm not sure how clearly you can see that here, but that's the heading that says Duke, or is changed here in the folio, and that says Edgar. It's a significant rewriting, one that either sets Albany up as an 11th hour hero who might take over Lear's kingdom, or one that reminds us of the horror that Edgar has undergone. Any gesture towards a future is drowned out here by the sound of slow drums, the dead march that reminds us of this tragedy's horrific body count. Now, that conclusion has not always suited popular tastes. We need only think of Nahum Tate's rewriting of Lear in 1681, in which Lear is restored to the throne for a happy ending. And this was the version of Lear that would grace the stage for the next 150 years. And as if to prove Byron right, Tate made this tragedy into a comedy by taking away the death and adding a marriage between Edgar and Cordelia. It's also worth noting that Fletcher himself, the co-writer of Henry VIII, wrote a play uh, influenced by, heavily based on, Shakespeare's The Tempest, which ends firmly and neatly with a series of convenient revelations and does not look ahead to the future and more pointedly to death as Shakespeare's Prospero does in his famous farewell epilogue. So endings matter, but endings are malleable. They shift through revision, through circumstances of performance, through our own acts of interpretation. When I think about the questions that remain hanging at the end of Shakespeare's plays, uh, from the fate of Malvolio in Twelfth Night to the famous silence of Iago in Othello, I think of the plays as an open bracket that is not properly closed at the other end. 
And this actually is Shakespeare's image of what a lack of an ending, um, an unending, I might say, actually looks like. So Shakespeare's Sonnet 126 is the only one of the 154 sonnets not to be made up of 14 lines. Instead, this poem is made up of 12. It's not just missing an ending, it's missing the volta or the rhyming couplet, which acts as a, a motto or a moral, which can turn an argument entirely on its head, but which is usually always a conclusion to this form of poetry. So the line goes, her audit, uh, though delayed, answered must be, and her creatus is to render thee space, space. It's a poem about growing old, about a lovely boy who gets better with age, yet time cannot be avoided forever. Death must come and with it silence, marked out in case you miss the blank space with empty brackets where a finishing couplet should be. They represent an absence. Uh, the critic Catherine Duncan Jones has argued that the two curved brackets suggest an hourglass shape for the passage of time. Empty brackets suggest that something is missing, and that is something that's very often said about the end of Henry VIII. It's not a textual omission, it's not a lost page, as the ending of, say, Taming of the Shrew may be. Um, Act 5 is tied up neatly, but not as we expect. So I started thinking about Henry VIII, also known as All is True, because of its famous disastrous ending. Uh, my wider research is on sound effects on the early modern stage. And for a while, Henry VIII has been a sort of footnote to the story I've been trying to tell, a sort of postscript uh, or final punchline that helped me to explain the value and, of course, the risk of sound effects. Uh, when talking about sound effects in Shakespeare and in the plays of his contemporaries, I'd often tell this quick story that in 1613, during a performance of Henry VIII at the Globe Theatre in London, a small cannon was fired to announce the entrance of the actor playing the king. A stray piece of cladding stuffed inside the gun so that it would fire blanks, not bullets, got caught in the straw of the playhouse thatched roof and set it on fire. So, somewhat miraculously, no one was killed, uh, but the playhouse did burn to the ground. It's a dramatic story and a terrifying example of just how wrong sound effects could go. Although, despite uh, many other examples of guns shot on stage, including in two early modern smash hits, Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy and Marlowe's The Jew of Malta, this does seem to be the only example of such a disaster. So, that particular performance of Henry VIII ended then and there, but of course the play was not supposed to. And I began thinking about that unperformed play, the show that wasn't seen, not on that June day in 1613 anyway. So this evening I'm going to consider not only the fire and the news accounts that it generated, but the other ways in which Henry VIII has not ended. One of those ways was quite as abrupt, although not quite as perilous as the fire. So 15 years later, uh, in 1628, George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, very publicly walked out of a revival performance at an extremely pointed moment in Act Two. So each performance of Henry VIII I'll talk about today will be getting longer and longer until at last we reach the ending of Henry VIII as we have it in printed form, uh, the final ending of the play itself, which nonetheless stops in the middle of a very famous story and ends with the happy christening of Elizabeth I. So it's not the ending we might expect, um, and not least because it's not the ending that the prologue promises us. 
So the prologue is spoken before the play takes place and it seems to set us up for a tragedy. I come no more to make you laugh, things now that bear a weighty and a serious brow, sad, high and working, full of state and woe, such noble scenes as draw the eye to flow, we now present. So does the play end, as we might expect, with the sort of misery that makes audiences cry? Before I talk about that ending, let me fill in the details of the plot for those who have not read or seen the play. Uh, Henry VIII is a collaborative play written as a joint work by William Shakespeare and his fellow playwright John Fletcher and performed in 1613. So the play is set 80 years earlier during the middle of the reign of King Henry VIII. It begins with a, a group of courtiers, that's Buckingham, Norwich and Abergavenny, railing against Cardinal Wolsey, the king's chief advisor. Two of those courtiers are arrested for treason. This is a court in which everyone is listening, in which a word against Cardinal Wolsey is enough to put a nobleman in prison. Meanwhile, uh, King Henry's wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon, tries to convince her husband to release their people from taxes, taxes which uh, Cardinal Wolsey is pocketing. King Henry is less interested in taxes than in a beautiful woman he meets at a banquet. This is Anne Bullen, or as we might more commonly know her, Anne Boleyn. Henry seeks to divorce Catherine and eventually does so, marrying Anne instead. Wolsey has sent letters to Rome behind Henry's back, asking the Pope to stop the divorce proceedings, and for his trouble he is banished from court. So Anne is crowned queen, Catherine dies, and Cranmer takes Wolsey's place as the king's chief advisor. It's a play about becoming obsolete, from Catherine, who is no longer wanted as queen, to Wolsey, who is no longer wanted as an advisor, to Anne, who is no longer needed now that she's had a child, and perhaps even to Henry himself, who imagines himself in heaven in the final scene of the play, looking down on his child and her glorious reign. Okay, to anyone who's watched the Tudors, Red Wolf Hall, or turn on the History Channel, this is a familiar story. It certainly would have been to those uh, watching Henry VIII of the Globe in 1613. Yet if you know anything about Henry VIII at all, it's probably that Henry had six wives. So where are wives three to six? When the play's over, Anne Boleyn, who is later to be executed for adultery and treason, is very much alive and well. Uh, the play ends with a parade as gentlemen and ladies process across the stage on their way to the christening of Anne's newborn daughter, Princess Elizabeth, one day to be Queen Elizabeth I. This is the final scene, or it would have been had fire not ravaged the globe before the end of Act One. So everything appears to be wrapped up, but uh, what can we make of a happy ending that we know is not properly ended? What can we make of a play entitled All is True when the missing conclusion to Henry's reign feels like a live omission? Does it fulfill the tragic promise of its prologue? So with these questions, what makes an ending in mind, I want to think about the three unendings of Henry VIII, the fire, the walkout, and the final scene itself. All three of these moments can help us to think about why Henry VIII seems to end so neatly and still leave audiences, or leave me at least, unsatisfied. So let's think about that fire first of all. In the fourth scene of Henry VIII, Cardinal Wolsey's hosting a banquet. So at the beginning of the scene, uh, Hope Boys, the ancestor of the modern oboe, uh, signal a change of scene. So Anne Boleyn enters at the first hoboy, Cardinal Wolsey enters some moments later at a second hoboy, and a third sound effect is used to cue the entrance of the king. 
a loud explosive sound effect of drum and trumpet chambers discharged. It's at this moment, the discharging of the guns, that the fire in the roof of the globe began. How far the actors got into the next lines, we don't know. Uh, a handful of records of the fire do survive, including a letter written by a young merchant, Henry Blewett, and rediscovered by uh, Maida Jansen Cole in 1981. This is Henry Blewett's letter. On Tuesday last, there was acted at the Globe a new play called All Is True, which had been acted not passing two or three times before. There came many people to see it in so much that the house was very full. And as the play was almost ended, the house was fired with shooting off a chamber which was stopped with towel, straw, which was blown up into the thatch of the house and so burnt to the ground. But the people escaped all without hurt, except one man who was scalded with the fire by adventuring in to save a child which otherwise had been burnt. And I just want to say as an aside that this letter describes the play as almost ended, which suggests either some confusion in the report of the fire or perhaps that it was just not always clear how long a play had been going. Um, other letters show that this was news that travelled really quickly around the country. So a letter written by Thomas Lorkin is dated London, this last of June 1613, in great haste. Uh, a letter by Henry Wotton writes of what has happened this week at the bank side. One by John Chamberlain, uh, dated 8th of July 1613, writes to Sir Ralph Winwood that the news cannot escape you. So the news spread quickly and it was a story that continued to have life even after the event itself. But while the fire and records of it give a fascinating insight into both playgoing and the spread of news beyond 17th century London, our interest in it has in some ways obscured our critical analysis of Henry VIII itself. In the midst of Wooten's letter about the fire, for instance, are several valuable insights into how an audience member might have considered an early modern play. So Wooten writes... The King's Players had a new play called All Is True, representing some principal pieces of the reign of King Henry VIII, Henry VIII, which was set forth with many extraordinary circumstances of pomp and majesty, even to the matting of the stage. The Knights of the Order with their georges and garter, the guards with their embroidered coats and the like, sufficient in truth within a while to make greatness very familiar, if not ridiculous. Now, King Henry making a mask at Cardinal Wolsey's house and certain cannons being shot off at his entry, uh, some of the paper or other stuff wherewith one of them was stopped, did light on the thatch. And so on, we know the rest of the story. But looking for the fire, we might miss other scraps of information within this account. Uh, so two details here seem to unsettle the generic boundaries we have traditionally placed on Henry VIII as history play, despite its tragic prologue. Firstly, it suggests that while Henry VIII was not trying to be a comedy, uh, its overuse of pomp and majesty, and indeed it's a play with two royal processions, a mask and two court trials, uh, it made it somehow funny, somehow ridiculous. It's a reminder, perhaps, that not every history play was taken seriously by those watching it, that it might even have strayed into comedy. Secondly, the letter describes the play in a way that seems serendipitously to answer the question of why the second half of Henry VIII's life seems to be of no interest to Shakespeare and Fletcher. So Wooten notes that the play presents some principal pieces of the reign of Henry VIII. Early modern audience members were well aware that not everything could be covered in the two hours traffic of the stage, and that playwrights would pick, choose, and change historical moments to suit their purpose. 
And uh, this is a painting now to be found in Hampton Court, which depicts the family of Henry VIII in what has often been observed to be an impossible configuration, because it shows Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour, standing beside her young son, Edward. She, she died shortly after giving birth to Edward, um, so this timeline has to have been reworked. Uh, and with Henry's daughters, Mary and Elizabeth also present, we get something like a collage of history. So history exists to be used, to be sifted for treasures and examples that might teach us something in the present. All of Shakespeare's history plays compress time, they change dates and use artistic license to tell a story. That story could stop wherever it suited the playwright to stop it. We need then to think of Henry VIII not as an unfinished history, but as a piece of history. Okay, so now I want to change gears and think about a more deliberate ending to the play, an ending brought about when a prominent member of the audience walked out. In 1628, with James's son Charles I now on the throne, George Villiers funded a revival of Henry VIII to be performed at the now rebuilt Globe. George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, was a favourite of the king's, but was unpopular with the people and with his fellow courtiers. So in the middle of Act Two, the character, the Duke of Buckingham, is executed for speaking out against Cardinal Wolsey. George Villiers was not descended from the Duke of Buckingham, whom we see executed in Henry VIII. That title was made extinct with the execution and was not passed on to his son. And when Charles I was looking for a title to give his favourite Villiers some 60 years later, Buckingham was going spare. But that did not stop Villiers uh, from identifying himself with his namesake, the Buckingham who speaks out against corruption in the court, stays loyal to the king, and is attacked and even executed for his trouble. So by standing up and walking out just as Buckingham is led off for execution, Villiers ensured that the audience would notice and remember him and hopefully associate him with a valiant but mistreated member of the court. As Peter Lake and Thomas Cogswell, they've put it in their article on the subject, Buckingham and his associates, although formerly spectators, were surely among the most important performers at the Globe in early August 1628. So Villiers participates in the action, choosing his own ending. He makes the play a play about the tragic downfall of another Duke of Buckingham. All the rest is irrelevant. He, as audience, has the power to cut his own experience of the play short and to underscore a scene for his own popularity. The exit itself is crucial because endings and exits were Villiers' point. His actions aligned him with a noble character and when he walked out of the globe, he was accompanied by many friends in a public show of support. So Villiers' exit is also a demonstration of power and of patronage. It reminds us, as it no doubt reminded the audience in 1628, that theatre was and is dependent on financial backing, for Villiers had paid for this revival. Theatre was certainly ultimately dependent on patronage and subject to rules of censorship. So even when Henry VIII was written in 1613, it's possible that its praise for Elizabeth and James was intended to flatter not only the reigning monarch, but his young daughter, also named Elizabeth, who was married that year. Uh, the critic R.A. Folks goes so far as to suggest that the play was written for her marriage celebrations, in which case it would be hard to imagine Shakespeare and Fletcher doing anything but praise King James, 
Although to that claim, I would add that divorce is perhaps not the best subject matter for that occasion. So Villiers' exit, his publicity stunt, should also remind us of our own power as audience and interpreters of drama. Rather than thinking of the audience as one mass, one mind who share similar reactions, examples like this remind us that we should think of audience members as individuals interpreting and crucially reinterpreting the pieces of a play that please them. So early modern playhouses were busy, fluid places, uh, places where audiences moved in and out, not always staying for a show and certainly able to leave if they wished. Plays were constantly striving to keep their audience's attention and walkouts, especially by those sitting in the side galleries or on the stage, were noticeable. In his handbook for gallants, the irritating, pretentious young men of the city, Thomas Decker, who was himself a playwright, sarcastically advises them to walk out if they find themselves mocked on stage. Now, sir, if the writer be a fellow that has either epigrammed you or hath had a flirt at your mistress or hath brought either your feather or your red beard or your little legs, etc., on the stage, you shall disgrace him worse. If in the middle of his play, be it pastoral or comedy, moral or tragedy, you rise with a screwed and discontented face from your stool to be gone. No matter whether the scenes be good or no, the better they are, the worse you do distaste them. And being on your feet, sneak not away like a coward, but salute all your gentle acquaintance that are spread either on the rushes or on stools about you, and draw what troop you can from the stage after you. So anyone can leave a play, and in doing so, strike out against the playwright. The power in the theatre ultimately lies with the audience, who pay, who attend, and who judge the proceedings. We know about Villiers' grand exit from contemporary newsletters, one of which reports that he should have stayed until the fall of Woolsey, with whom he had far more in common. Again, we see audience members interpreting and recasting history plays to suit their own present narrative, drawing parallels with their own time and with those in positions of power. While thinking about the ambiguous endings of Shakespeare's plays, it's worth considering that they deliberately leave us some of the work to do. The critic H. Porter Abbott asserted in his study of narrative that interpretation is a form of closure in that it is an assertion of meaning within which the text can be accommodated. Even if the interpretation is an assertion of the text's multiple ambiguities, that itself is an embracing formula. So we bring the play to a close by interpreting it. It's our act of engagement, the solution we decide upon as audience, that resolves the play. Villiers changed his ending, and directors of Henry VIII have done the same. The fifth act of the play is often being cut short in favour of the meatier earlier scenes. In 1855, as Folks points out in his Arden edition of the play, Edmund Keane could claim to restore the fifth act of late years entirely omitted. Printers have also added an interpretive slant. There's an edition of Henry VIII uh, printed in 1734 by J. Tonson, which gives the play the title The Life and Death of King Henry VIII by Mr. William Shakespeare a very misleading selling point as the play ends, of course, in the middle of Henry's life. But what's in an ending? Uh, let's turn to that fifth act. So in the final scene of the play, Cranmer, who has himself almost suffered the same fate as Wolsey and has been challenged by a court of his peers, is still standing. And he praises the newborn Elizabeth and predicts the successful reign of James. Nor shall this peace sleep with her, 
But as when the bird of wonder dies, the maiden phoenix, her ashes new create another heir, as great in admiration as herself. By ending with the birth of Elizabeth, Shakespeare and Fletcher recast Tudor history to serve one purpose, of leading perfectly to the Jacobean present. Henry VIII's cataclysmic break with the Catholic Church, his divorce, the fall of Wolsey, all these things are necessary turns to take on a road that leads to King James. The rest, including the execution of two wives, is not really relevant, as all will be forgotten when Elizabeth comes to power. Anne Boleyn has been largely forgotten by the play already, as she's not on stage in this final scene. It is Orson Welles famously observed, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. But what do we want of an ending? Should it resolve the problems set up at the beginning? Well, Henry needs an heir, and now in Elizabeth he has one. And of course, hindsight is a wonderful thing, because this is certainly not how Henry VIII would have seen the birth of a daughter. And indeed, Henry's two other children, Mary, who was born before Elizabeth and who was absent in the play, and Edward, the son of Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour, both inherited the throne before Elizabeth. And that's something that the final speech given to Henry hints at. He says, never before this happy child did I get anything, as if she were not his second daughter. The play plays with the truth, and it draws attention to any moments where the truth is twisted. So what do we make of this happy ending? It doesn't appear to be the tearjerker that the prologue promised. Instead, it brings this history right up to the present day with the final couplet of Cramner's prophecy. Our children's children shall see this and bless heaven. But did the next generation, the attending audience, bless heaven when they saw Elizabeth reign? Many of those present at the play in 1613 uh, would have lived through her reign as they were now living through James's. If Henry VIII was performed at court for the marriage celebrations of James's daughter Elizabeth, the answer might have been a resounding yes. But did those in the globe in 1613 necessarily feel so joyous? In speaking of the present, Henry VIII is the exception amongst Shakespeare's histories. Cramner's prophecy can be proved true or false because the audience watching the play are living in the golden era that he has predicted. Yet, while Henry VIII brings its story up to the present day of 1613, looking ahead to the future is hardly an unusual mark of a Shakespearean play. History plays, by their very nature, have no real resolution. History marches forwards. Today's prince will be tomorrow's king, and a war that is won is only won for now. Henry IV, part one, for instance, uh, ends with a victory over Hotspur, but with a promise of further battles to come. So its final lines are, and since this business so fair is done, let us not leave till all our own be won. And Henry IV, part two, promises a sequel. If you be not too much cloyed with fat meat, our humble author will continue the story with Sir John in it and make you merry with fair Catherine of France. Henry V ends with a happy marriage, or it seems to, until the chorus has the final line, undoing everything that had been achieved within the play. Henry V has won a victory in France, but he will die young and his son will lose the lands that his father has won. Thus far, with rough and all-enable pen, our bending author hath pursued the story. In little room, confining mighty men, mangling by starts the full course of their glory. 
Henry VI, an infant bands crowned king of France and England, did this king succeed, whose state so many had the managing that they lost France and made his England bleed, which oft our stage hath shown, and for their sake in your fair minds let this acceptance take. So again, here we have a hint of those pieces of history we found in Wotton's letter, as Shakespeare acknowledges that the full course of glory cannot be told, but must be confined, even mangled. Of course, hinting at the part of history that is to come is a financially savvy move. It reminds audiences that they should come back and see another part of the story. When the epilogue notes that the reign of Henry VI is something which oft our stage hath shown, Shakespeare is reminding us of his own plays because his Henry VI was written before his Henry V. But it also tells us something about the stage itself. It can offer us two hours of another world and time, but the power is fleeting, and what cannot be shown must be conjured up by audience imagination and by their memory of other plays they've seen to fill in the blanks. So this suggests audience engagement at a sophisticated literary level, that they must know more of the story than is shown and enjoy a piece of history in a wider context of history with which it is assumed they will be familiar. So thinking of audiences, I want to turn to Henry VIII's epilogue and the audience approval it seeks. After Henry proclaims that today, the day of the christening, will be a holy day or holiday, everyone leaves the stage. Only the speaker of the epilogue remains to appeal for applause and to appeal particularly to the women in the audience. I fear all the expected good we're like to hear for this play at this time is only in the merciful construction of good women, for such a one we showed him. If they smile and say twill do, I know within a while all the best men are ours, for tis ill hap if they hold when their ladies bid them clap. To the merciful construction of good women, for such a one we showed him. There's something slightly unsettling about this epilogue, as it takes pains to point out that there has been one good woman on stage. But who is she? Is Anne, who barely features, the good woman of the piece? Well, she's certainly Elizabeth's mother, and when we end, Henry's dear wife. Or is it Catherine, who dominates the play, who speaks in her own divorce trial the very words that Queen Catherine of Aragon did speak, barely changed at all by Shakespeare? Catherine who speaks up for the people. Catherine who dies loyal to the husband who's abandoned her. And if Catherine is the good woman, should this not really have been a play about her daughter? A play that ends not with Princess Elizabeth, but with Princess Mary. The ending leaves us with two options. To take this praise of the Elizabethan and Jacobean reign seriously, or to think that it is somehow subversive, somehow challenging. The structure of Henry VIII goes some way towards answering this question. Henry VIII is a play that offers a series of parallel scenes. As Lee Bliss has observed, there is a pattern of falls, of rising and falling stars. This is a term drawn from a gentleman who observes the coronation of Anne Boleyn in Act Four, and who is soon shushed by his friend. So the second gentleman says, these are stars indeed, and sometimes falling ones to which his friend says no more of that. This pattern of rises and falls suggests a cycle, a history that will continue to repeat itself in a manner that resembles the medieval concept of the turning wheel of fortune. Why then should the happy birth of Elizabeth or the succession of James I be any different from the reign of Henry VIII, 
which we have seen in this play to be plagued by lies and infighting. Okay, <laughs> I've restrained myself all afternoon from jokes about Shakespeare, but as we move to the end, you'll have to give me this one. I want to borrow a line from Macbeth uh, to say that the last lines of a play aren't the be-all and end-all. What if the resolution is not supposed to be a solution to the problem? I don't think we should see the possibility of multiple interpretations, even of multiple endings, as a problem. And indeed, this is the name that the critic F.S. Bowers gives to the plays that don't really end as we expect them to, the problem plays. It's all's well that ends well, measure for measure, Troilus and Cressida. And I think that we need to acknowledge that these plays are openly calling for audience interpretation. And indeed, that interpretation is our part of the theatrical bargain. We're asked for it. Not perhaps quite as much as we're asked for applause, but we are asked for it. It's not about the ending, but the ends, the way we get to Act 5. While almost every play will have a last line, I think we need to resist the idea that a play has a final word. So to think about endings as I wrap things up myself, I want to go back to that Byron quotation I've used myself many times before. All tragedies are finished by a death. All comedies are ended by a marriage. It's a helpful joke and it's one that critics often quote in order to illustrate the rough generic guidelines that can be used to sort one play from another. Although it's worth noting that playwrights often did not divide their plays so strictly into comedies and tragedies. But convenient as this definition is, it's not quite what Byron has to say and I could hardly leave the ending out. So the verse reads in full, all tragedies are finished by a death. All comedies are ended by a marriage. The future states of both are left to faith. For authors fear description might disparage the worlds to come of both, or all beneath. And then both worlds would punish their miscarriage. So leaving each their priest and prayer book ready, they say no more of death or of the lady. So in short, marriage and death are hard to describe best leave those blissful or dreadful subjects alone. Yet amidst the literary teasing, there's something in Byron's sense of an ending that sticks. The future states of both are left to faith. As well as religious faith, and priests apparently have more knowledge of death and marriage than the poets do, there is a different kind of faith required when a story ends, our own belief in what might happen next. Shakespeare knew the power of leaving things unsaid, of, as Byron might have put it, testing our faith and asking us to imagine what happens next. If what happens beyond marriage or death is left to faith, then plots that end that way require some imaginative work on our part, beyond the point at which they seem to end. Theatre is always an imaginative enterprise. It's something that Shakespeare acknowledges in the prologue to Henry V when he asks, and let us ciphers to this greater Comte on your imaginary forces work. Or in uh, perhaps a more famous line, think when we talk of horses that you see them. It's something that Fletcher acknowledged in his comedy, The Night of the Burning Pestle, collaboratively written with Francis Beaumont, in which actors playing audience members actually climb onto the stage and demand a different play from the one they've been promised. Audience demand quite literally changes what is on stage. Audience interpretation has the ability to shift the meaning of an ending. 
And this act of interpretation of imagination is what the prologue of Henry VIII asks of us. Think ye see the very persons of our noble story as they were living. Think ye see them great, and followed with the general throng and sweat of thousand friends. Then, in a moment, see how soon this mightiness meets misery. And if you can be merry then, I'll say, a man may weep upon his wedding day. What the handful of records we have of Henry VIII or All is True seem to underscore is the importance of its audience. Its fiery ending was newsworthy of being circulated in letters, letters which also included reviews of its pomp and circumstance. Villiers' exit changed the emphasis of the play to the fall of Buckingham, and in turn, fellow audience members compared him to Wolsey. The epilogue itself speaks to good women and seeks their applause. And of course, Act 5 looks ahead, begging for the gap, the empty brackets between the past and the present, to be filled in by an act of imaginative faith. The audience makes the ending. The audience round the playoff with applause. The audience think, and so they see. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.